Mark 8, 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And the others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Well, you guys are a delight to the eyes. To be able to gather together is a joy, and I'm thankful to be able to do it. My name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. We are sojourners. We are trying as a body of believers to root ourselves down deeper in the identity on this earth as strangers and aliens and sojourners. We are children of the living God, and our home is with Him, And so that makes us strangers and aliens here. And by the kind providence of God, we have the opportunity in this time with the onset of coronavirus to live that out a little bit more fully or to feel the weight of that identity a little bit more fully. And as sojourners whose home is as secure as Jesus is risen, we get to be free, free to love, free to love the Lord, free to love our neighbors, Uh, This is not a time, I feel like, for the people of God to pull back and retreat in fear. This is a time to press in, to to serve, to evangelize, to be the peaceful presence of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth as sojourners and strangers. We don't have to live in fear because we know the risen Christ. We know our home, we know our destination, and we're moving in that direction. And so we are, in this time, especially useful because we're free from fear, and God has placed us in this place, at this time, for such a time as this. So let's be sojourners. Let's trust God. Let's wash our hands, give air high fives, and refrain from holy kisses, and let's love our neighbors uh, as the unique people of God. And perhaps maybe more than ever, we need to hear of Jesus and the Jesus that Mark reveals to us. We need to hear about this one who's called the Christ. But In one sense, it is needed more than ever. In another sense, it it really isn't. It's always needed more than ever because it's always the most needful thing for us as people created in the image of God. And Mark has shown us a, a lot of the Son of God. He's shown us this Son of God, this Jesus, who has come and he's taught authoritatively. And he has taught like no one else teaches. He's shown us a Jesus who has come and he's healed powerfully. He's done things that that have never been heard of on planet Earth. He has come and he has done both of those things very publicly. He hasn't been hiding in the darkness. He's taught and he's healed very publicly for people to to see. And Jesus' unique identity has been put on display for the world, has been put on display for those around him, for the religious and for the irreligious, for the, the mighty and powerful and for the weak for the elites and for the poor, for those who are sick and those who have no need of a doctor, so they think. For the Jew and for the Gentile, he has put, on his, put his identity on display for all of them to see so they might know who he is. As certainly the life and ministry of Jesus created because of his powerful healing and authoritative teaching, it created much buzz. 
Like there's a lot of words going around about Jesus and who people think he is. You, you know that Herod's court, we read about this, Herod's court had heard some news about this Jesus and they had to kind of come up with a, an opinion, like who do we think Jesus is? The woman who had a, a flow of blood for over 12 years, she had heard rumors of this Jesus who could maybe heal her. And so she responded accordingly to try to find him. Like word is going around the area, the region of Jesus' life and ministry, and, and people are starting to create and form their opinions. And the work of Jesus has many people saying, who is this guy? Who is this Jesus? And that's a question that Jesus actually asks here to his disciples. In verse 27 of Mark chapter 8, it says, Jesus went on with his disciples. Last time we saw him, he was in Bethsaida. Now he's moving on northward, 25-ish miles around the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, Jesus is on the way with his disciples, and Jesus, as this model teacher, is discipling them on the way. You might remember in, in Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 6, there's this famous passage called the Shema, where it says, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And what he says right after that, he said, These words you need to teach to your children when you're on the way. And Jesus here is setting the example of how to teach, how to disciple on the way. Because on the way, he's talking to them, he's asking them the question. He uses their day's walk, and it would have been a day's walk. They have 25-ish miles to go. He uses it intentionally, and he uses it to ask this question, who do people say that I am? It's a pretty non-threatening question. It's a good way to start this conversation that Jesus has with them. Like, what, what do people say? What, what's out there about me? It's a question of the, the court of public opinion. What are people saying about me out there? Now, the disciples should know some of these answers. You remember in chapter 6, the disciples were all sent out. They went out all over different towns and villages in the name of Jesus, with his authority. And so they're coming and they're greeting one another. They're, they're trying to find people to minister to in the name and authority of Jesus to extend his, his ministry. So they had heard, likely, some feedback on who this Jesus is and what he has done. It probably perked up some people's ears when they said, yeah, we're, we're disciples of Jesus and we come and minister in his name. They probably said, oh, I've heard of Jesus. And then they would have said, here's what we think of him. So they had been sent out. They, they know what is out there. Plus, they're in these crowds with Jesus often. Surely they're hearing some you know, words and rumors like from the crowds kind of feeding into their ears of, of what people are saying about the one that they're witnessing and hearing and seeing heal. And in their answer, what they do is they give the prevailing and popular opinions that were out there and known. They say, verse 28, some say John the Baptist... Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Now Mark has already given us the opinion of many. Earlier in the book of Mark, we saw the opinion of Jesus' film family. They said he's out of his mind. So here's his identity. He's a crazy person. That's what his family said. Now he's given the, the opinions of others. The scribes said, oh, we know how he does these things. It's by the power of Beelzebul. So here's Jesus. His identity is one who's possessed, maybe by Satan himself. The demons had it right, at least in some regards. They said, oh, what have you to do with us, son of the most high God? They had his identity down. In Nazareth, the village there said, well, aren't you just the son of Joseph? Aren't you the carpenter's son, the son of Mary? So they just thought, here's a normal guy. Herod, when he hears about him, says, maybe he's John the Baptist resurrected. He's come back, and maybe he's going to haunt me because I killed John the Baptist. He has all those kind of shame and guilt in his life. Herod's court had heard about it. 
They had the same information that we have, that Jesus' disciples have on his identity. So many out there are answering the question, who Jesus is? Who is this Jesus? And the popular opinion out there is pretty high. They're saying of him, the popular opinion is that he's special in some ways. They are not saying this is just an average Joe that's just doing his thing on the earth. That is not the opinion that's out there that's prevailing. So outsiders are peering into the life and ministry of Jesus And the popular opinion is that he is not just some average guy. He is doing something particular that's better and different and special than we've seen. They say, John, the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. They were all distinct and different characters in their own right. Their ministries stick out. They were different kind of people. John, he ministered in the wilderness, not the place to kind of have a ministry take off. He goes out where there's nobody. And he starts ministering there. And he does some odd things. He, he wore camel's hair. He eats locusts and honey. Everyone that comes to him, he just tells them to repent. I mean, that's what we know about John the Baptist. Like, he's a unique minister of the gospel. Elijah. Well, he's even in the same spirit of, of John the Baptist. They have some similarities. Elijah's kind of out in the wilderness at times as well by himself. He's fed by ravens. You might remember the story of uh, how he raised a, a widow's son. That was a little bit strange. That didn't happen all the time. He, he meets and has this, uh, this royal rumble with the prophets of, of Baal on Mount Carmel. Man, this stuff kind of doesn't happen all the time. Elijah has unique ministry. And then Elijah didn't even die. He's taken up into heaven. So that's, again, high praise. that so We're going to put him in the same category with John and Elijah. The prophets, they were those who declared the word of God to the people of God. Some of them did it in very vivid ways, like lay on your side for several days, like They did some extreme things. All of these were people that were recognized as as people that were sent by God for for some sort of purpose. They had unique ministries. And Jesus was put in that same category. When Nicodemus came to him in John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. Hey, we know that you're something. You're sent from God. And no one can do the things that you do unless God had sent him. So there's there's something out there in the, the life and ministry of Jesus that makes people think like something's different here, something special. And the popular opinion was that Jesus stands among the stellar figures of Israel's history. And the popular opinion out there is that he ranks among the greatest number of the most illustrious characters in Israel's history. This is not an average show. This is something better, bigger than that. And as high as the court of public opinion is on Jesus, it should fall on disciples, on the disciples' ears here and all disciples' ears as woefully inadequate. To put Jesus as an equal to John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets may sound like a prestigious placement among some of God's elite of the past. But we have to ask, is that an accurate weighing of the evidence that we have? Think about the ministry of Jesus. No one has shown the authority that Jesus has already shown up to this point in the Gospel of Mark. Or come close. To say that Jesus is among those other guys is to decrease what he's already shown us. No one teaches the way he teaches. That's why everybody said, hey, you teach like the authority. No one heals the way he heals and does it repeatedly. Everywhere he goes, he's casting out demons, he's healing diseases. He does what no other one has ever been able to do. To say that Jesus is like John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets falls sinfully short of what Jesus has already revealed about himself in his life as ministry up to this point. 
And while it doesn't sound so bad to say, hey, he's Elijah, remember how all the great stuff he does? Or hey, John the Baptist, he had a lot of people and he kept telling them to repent. Like, maybe it doesn't sound so bad, but it's not much better than what the scribe said when he's powered by the Beelzebul himself. Just a step above that. Indeed, he teaches and he heals and he casts out like no other. He claims and displays a unique kind of authority. When he comes on the scene, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. Not be prepared for it. It's here now. He, when a paralytic is lowered from the roof, starts off not with healing paralysis, but his sins in front of the religious elite. And he's saying, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. That authority belonged to God alone. Jesus is saying, I'm God alone. He says to the Pharisees who question his Sabbath practice, he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus displays a kind of kingdom authority, a kingdom power that far surpasses all others, that doesn't fall into the category of Elijah or one of the prophets or John the Baptist. And that's not to decrease their lives and their ministries and their role in the kingdom of God at all. One author says it this way, that the authority that Jesus has demonstrated throughout Mark's narrative does not allow him to be defined by something other than himself and his relationship with the Father. That's it. There's one category we could put Jesus in rightfully, and everything else is going to be off. And it's a unique category. So it's not an honorable thing to, to identify Jesus highly if we're identifying him less than he actually is. That's a problem. The public opinion may have changed since then, I'm guessing it has, maybe somewhat shifted. But the same symptoms of inadequacy in terms of Jesus' identity are present in our day. You're going to poll the public opinion, you might see that Jesus is spoken of kind of highly. Many would agree that Jesus is some sort of good teacher. Many would agree that he set a really good example of how to love your neighbor. Maybe even in churches we could say all those things and Churches could probably even say like, he's an example of love, he's an example of mercy, he's an example of grace, he's kind of a renaissance man, at him kind of turn all the tides of history. All sorts of people could say those kinds of things, and those things are said. And I think that we could fall in the same category. One author, I just read this a few days ago, he said, settled cozily in my armchair, I tend to assume that God must be rather like me. Bigger and better, I concede, but basically like me. And I think that many of us would share that sentiment. Like, yeah, he's probably a little better than me. But maybe a lot like me. And by saying bigger and better, we think that that makes it then okay. He's a better example. He's a better teacher. He's better at loving. He's bigger than me. He can do more than me. He's more powerful. And all that might sound honorable, might sound like we're trying to compliment, might sound like we're trying to put Jesus in rare air above us. But again, all of that should fall on all disciples' ears as woefully inadequate and much less than what has actually been revealed to us. Perhaps that's your view. (laughs) I like Jesus. He seems okay. But maybe he's just a great teacher. Maybe he's just a moral example. Maybe he was just a good guy in history. And I would say, consider the evidence of the book of Mark so far. Think about what Jesus has done that's been well attested to. A a paralytic is lowered down before him and he tells him to get up and walk. And that was to show that he had authority on earth to forgive sins. He meets Jairus, whose daughter's sick, and he goes to Jairus' home where there are people that are mourning and wailing because Jairus' daughter has already died. And he tells them to stop. And they laugh at him. 
And he goes in, he grabs this little girl, and he pulls her from death. People knew her after that. They knew that she was dead, and then she knew she was alive. These are well attested. He goes to a man who's blind, and he takes a couple touches, sure, but he opens his eyes. People don't do these kinds of things. These are all well attested. They, they show unique authority. All of them show there's, there's something more here than, than just to say he's like one of the prophets or he's one of the best among us, like he's among the elite but not any higher than the elite. The evidence is weighty. It's compelling. If you're not convinced that Jesus is Lord, I would say weigh the evidence. Consider it because I think it should be considered. I think Jesus wants it to be considered. I think that's part of the reason why he asked the question. So Jesus asked them, like, what do people think? And he gets their wheels turning. I'm like, okay, identity of Jesus. That's where we're going with now. All right, so what, what do people say? That's the first question. And he, he does that so he could lay the layer of another question. Verse 29, we see him lay another question down. And he asks them, but who do you say that I am? That's a massive question. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus is interested not just in what the court of public opinion says, or what Herod would say, or what the crowds would say, or what people from Nazareth would say. He wants to know what his disciples would say. Who do you say that I am? He wants to gauge their thoughts on his identity. He wants to know their view. He wants to know their convictions. He wants to know their faith. He's drawing it out with this question, who do you say that I am? I think one author has it rightly when he says that the two stages of the question require the disciples to form and express their own judgment about Jesus rather than merely seconding the view of others. They must separate themselves from the majority opinion and risk a personal confession. I think it's instructive that Jesus doesn't just ask, well, what do people say? He asks them, even though he knows where they're at, he asks them, what do you say? Not just people, what do you say? He's pushing them to, as this author says, risk personal confession. And as he does this, we know this was true for his disciples. It will be true for all disciples of all time, but also for all people. He is going to push us to risking personal confession at one time or another. No one is going to be able to stand before Jesus on the confession of another. What do you say? What do you say? And Mark has made the disciples' confusion over the identity of Jesus pretty well known. We've seen it through multiple uh, boat incidents. If you skip back to Mark chapter 6, verse 49, Jesus has fed the 5,000. He's done great things, and here he's walking on the water. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. And they cried out, for they all saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and says, Take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. And then this comment, right? They're not clear on things yet. They did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Chapter 8, verse 17, we saw this so clearly that he says, Do you not yet perceive or understand? Or verse 21, Do you not yet understand? The answer is that they don't understand yet. They don't get it yet. So Mark has made it known that the disciples, no matter what they say here, have still some confusion, some remnants of confusion in their minds and their hearts about the exact identity of Jesus. And Mark has shown that their sight is blurry, that Jesus is the patient, 
with his opening of their eyes. And part of his eye-opening process is this question on what do you say? He presses into his disciples, not allowing them to remain silent and on the sidelines and in the background when everyone else has something to say about the identity of Jesus. He pushes them into the game. And he says, well, I don't want to just hear if others saying, John, Elijah, what do you say? In the book Fahrenheit 451, it's a book about uh, kind of an American dystopian society where books are, are illegal and they're burned. And they're burned because they are upsetting, it says. And they lead to upsetting thoughts. So we don't read the books, we burn the books. Right? And, and the main character is, is Montag, and he has these books, and he starts showing these books to his, his wife. And she says, man, just leave me alone. And here's what he says. It's really memorable. He says, we need not to be let alone. We need to be really bothered once in a while. How long is it since you were really bothered about something real, about something important? Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He is lovingly, graciously bothering them. He's stirring their thoughts, getting them to think. He asks very specifically to stir their hearts, to spur, stir their thoughts about something real and about something important about himself. Who do you say that I am? Perhaps this morning we need to be bothered. And this question needs to be put in front of us. What do you say about Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? This is an important question, a real question, and I think that it should make us risk, all of us risk, personal confession. Who do you say Jesus is? And Jesus asks the question that's no longer about others. Now it comes down to us. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asks. He wants an answer. He doesn't want us to remain spectators and just kind of taking all of this in. He wants us to risk personal confession. And so with this question, we are thrust into interaction with him and his identity. It should rightly bother us. It should provoke us, not only to thought, but also to an answer, to a confession. What do we say about Jesus? Who do we say that Jesus is? He asks because he actually wants to know. He wants them to answer. And so who answers? Peter steps up, I think as a spokesman for the group, so it doesn't seem as if he's acting by himself alone, but it's Peter who speaks. In verse 29, Peter answers him, you are the Christ. Again, profound question gets this profound response from Peter. Christ, he says, you are the Christ. Now, Christ is the same word as Messiah. We're we're equating those. You're the Christ, you're the Messiah. It's one who is anointed by God, the anointed one. Not just any anointed one, the anointed one. In the Old Testament, the prophets were anointed. The kings were anointed. The priests were anointed. But there's not much in the Old Testament specifically about Messiah. So if you do like a word search, Messiah in the Old Testament, you're not going to find a ton. What you will see is a lot of connections to some sort of coming king. There's all sorts of connections about this Messiah and a coming king. There are many texts then, if you start looking about this future king, There are many texts about that. Some sort of future son of David who's going to reign forever. I'll give you a sample of them. We saw one earlier. You heard one earlier in Psalm chapter 2. In 1 Chronicles 17.11, it says, When your days are fulfilled, God's speaking to David, to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, these are some of the, the, the passages we read around Christmas and Advent. It says, O Bethlehem, 
from you shall come forth from, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Or Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and, and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Or in Isaiah chapter 61, it says that the Son... Son of the Lord, or the, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me, there's that word, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the, opening of the prison to those who are bound. And it goes on. Maybe these are some of the, the passages that would have run through their heads of thinking about one who has promised to come. There's all sorts of connections made between the covenant that God had made with David for this future ruler, this future king, and the anointed one, the Messiah. So this covenant with David and an anointed king, it's a prominent theme that were pushed kind of together in the Old Testament. It's especially prominent between the Testaments. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have all these messianic expectations. There's a Messiah coming and he's going to be this king. He's going to reign and he's going to rule. So naturally they moved from king to anointed. So there's all sorts of then kingly expectations of a Messiah, of a Christ who has to come. One author says it this way that it just kind of sums it up. The idea of the Messiah as an eschatological end times ruler of Israel and the nations was generally present. And so this is in the background as, as Peter is, is saying the words he says. And this is in his mind. I'm thinking when he's saying that you are the Christ. These texts, these expectations were not absent from the disciples' minds or from the crowds, likely many of them, as they walk with Jesus. They're thinking, who is this one who is to come? And their expectations are through the roof. Here's come, there's one coming. He's going to be this great political ruler. He's going to reign and rule on the throne of David. He's going to be God's people. He's going to be their king, and he's going to rescue them from all their enemies and push them back. So Jesus, with his provoking question, gets this answer from Peter. You are the Christ. Now Matthew helps us, and then he says, when Peter says this, Jesus says to him, oh, this is revealed to you by my Father. In other words, that confession came not just from Peter, but was revealed to him. But Peter confessing this is massive. It's not based on hearsay. It's not based on the rumors that he's heard in the crowds. It's based on his experience and interaction with Jesus. It's not based on what Jesus has told him. Jesus hadn't come out and just said, hey, I'm the Christ. He didn't do that. Peter is out there on a limb saying, you are the Christ. After considering Jesus' life and ministry, Peter confesses, you are the Christ. And when he does this, he gives Jesus the proper title, although he may not know it fully yet. He gives him the proper title. He's saying, Jesus is that one who's going to bring God's reign to the earth. He is that one. He's this one king that we've been waiting for. He's the one that's going to reign like we thought. So in many ways, the, the question of who do you say that I am is, is a central question for Peter, for the disciples. It's a central question for all readers of Mark's gospel. He wants us to interact with this question. Who do you say that I am? And it's a question like Peter. It calls for some sort of response. 
It's a question that calls us to consider and to respond. We can't remain passive and assume some things about Jesus. We have to answer, and we have to answer from what's actually there. It calls us to participation, to confession, to laying our response down before Jesus and others. One author says that if the disciples are to continue on the way with Jesus, with him, they can't remain spectators. He, he kind of draws the line for him in a sense. So you have to answer who you say that I am. And we're not in too different of a place. And many of us would claim some sort of answer. We would make some sort of claim. Or that we would say, we're at least on the way with Jesus. We're some of his followers and disciples. And so we know some of Jesus' life and ministry up to this point. And the question before us again is, who do we say that Jesus is? It's a central question to our lives. It has vital importance for us. Now, Peter's confession provokes us to consider if we agree. What do we think of Jesus? Do we agree with Peter's assessment? Is Jesus the Christ? When you think of Jesus and his identity, what do you make of him? How would you answer if he was asking you, who do you say that I am? Now, Peter, he moves beyond John the Baptist. He moves even further beyond than Elijah or one of the prophets. All disciples must do this, by the way. Peter has a higher assessment. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ, which leads to Jesus saying, again, something that we wouldn't think he would say. It's like, this is the time to celebrate. Maybe Peter gets it. Like, let's, let's start hugging and having high fives. And like, all right, let's go. Let's carry this into Caesarea Philippi. Let's make sure all the villages know this. But he doesn't do that. In verse 30, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Jesus, up to this point, had not come out and said that he was the Christ. He's been very reserved on announcing any of his identity. He referred to himself a few times as Son of Man, which is pretty vague and ambiguous. And so he's pretty reserved in this. He's reserved in this because the expectations for the Christ, the Messiah, were way off. There were different expectations in what Christ was going to fulfill. An expectation of a political ruler that will finally put down Rome and put foreign enemies to flight, and let Israel reign and rule with their king in their place in Jerusalem. He has all those expectations filling this. And because of those expectations, he didn't want that to be skewed during that time. He tells the demons and others who actually know his identity to kind of keep it quiet. He doesn't want his identity as the Christ to be skewed by them either. And he's keeping things kind of back, holding them back for a little bit. What's also clear is that whether or not this Messiah was going to be divine, a divine figure from the Old Testament, from the intertestamental period is unclear. So although they might be saying something really high when they say that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, they may be saying still something and likely are saying something less than he's divine. So we have all this building in here, all this is just kind of present in Jesus' disciples and around the world today, around the world in his day. And so he says, let's not talk about this yet. He keeps the spread of his identity low. He does that so he can fill that. He doesn't want all these expectations building to saying, oh, well, this is the Christ. He wants to show them by his life, by his ministry. He wants to fill the identity of what it is to be the Christ with his life, with his work. This is what he's been doing through the Gospel of Mark already. He's been shattering expectations everywhere. He comes and he sees this paralytic lowered before the roof and he shatters expectations and he says, your sins are forgiven. He's the divine one, the Christ. Amen. But they don't know it yet. They don't see it. 
He comes and he shatters expectations and that he eats with sinners. He's the Messiah, the Christ. It's good news for the poor, but not in the way they think. He's the Messiah, the Christ. Not that he raises up this great army to then take on the Romans, but he calls nobodies, fishermen, tax collectors, the unimportant folks of the day. No one flashy, really. Just a group of people that will follow him faithfully. He calls them. He steps into the synagogue and he, and he picks up scrolls and he says, oh, that's been fulfilled in me. He teaches authoritatively, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. He comes and he goes out and he starts healing and he casts out demons. and He does this all very powerfully. He is showing us, he's showing, and Mark is revealing for us, this is what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Christ. It's likely different than almost everyone realized and is almost certainly better than anyone could have ever hoped. This is not the Messiah that any would have expected. This is not the one that they would have thought of when they thought of the Messiah. He's been living differently. He's been healing and teaching differently. He's been interacting with people differently than what they would have thought. He's kind of building his program for, for his followers differently. Indeed, the expectations are going to continue to shatter the remaining verses of chapter 8, and again, he's going to have to tell them multiple times, and until we see the end of Mark, he's going to tell them that the Messiah came to die. Now, that wasn't a category that they had prepared for at all. Indeed, it leads to some heavy rebuking on the part of Jesus, some great confusion on the part of his disciples. Jesus wants to fill in this identity of what it means to be the Christ, the Messiah, and it's better than any of us could have realized as well. At most, at that time, probably would have settled for someone like an Elijah. I'd have been happy with him. He can do great things. He can stir us up. Maybe he can put down the prophets of, of Baal again. Many would have settled for someone like Caesar or Pharaoh who can lead the charge, the army, and gain political victory for us so that we can get our territory back, so that we can reign and rule, and that we don't have to worry about these ugly enemies anymore. Many would have settled for that. But again, Jesus is a better Messiah. Better than anyone would have expected, but the one they actually need. The Messiah who came to live perfect life. To come to sinners. To heal those who are diseased. To give good news to those who are in bondage. To die a sacrificial death. This is the Christ. So the question that's before us again is not so much, who do people say that I am? But what do you say? Who do you say that Jesus is? Let's bow in prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, may we not be a people who second the confession of others, who gather on Sunday morning and hear a good word spoken and know in our heads that must be true and leave unchanged. God, may we not be those people. Lord, I pray that our confessions would be rooted and founded upon a personal experience with you. May our confessions be 
rooted in your word and faith as we seek to know you, Lord, as we seek to navigate our way through this world. God, we know we are all in process and at times we, we are far from, far from perfect in what we believe and therefore how we act. But God, we know that you are perfect and we know that you are committed to our sanctification. You desire to clear the smoke, Lord, to show us who you are in your glory, that our confessions may be more and more refined to encapsulate more and more of, of your glory and your greatness, Lord. Help us to follow hard, to check our expectations, Lord, against your word. Really, Lord, just to let them die and to let you form them. We're grateful for your patience, Lord. We're grateful for the gospel of Mark and what it's teaching us about ourselves and, and our need for you. We pray that you would just open our hearts and continue to teach us, Father. In Christ's name, amen.